You're listening to audio from Genesis Community Church. To find out more, visit us online at genesiscommunity.church. So if you're going, well, I don't want to jump in like it, you know, seven-eighths of the Old Testament left, then just join us for the New Testament. We'll just hit reset. We'll start over. We'll do it again, and it'll be, uh, it'll be good. Remember, as we even started the year, the whole point was, if you read along with us, then Sunday will be more helpful for you because we're trying to put pieces together and make sense of it all. And so if we're always just trying to use Sunday as the spot where we gain all of our Bible knowledge and understanding, we will be really let down because it just can't accomplish a week's worth of engaging, praying, discussing uh, that we would all like for it to be. So uh, we get to gather, we get to worship, and the more we're engaging with the Lord throughout the week, the better even this gathering becomes because it's no longer just about, uh, well, you know, I, I gotta suck up everything I can because the week's coming and I'm just gonna, you know, I need it. Uh, we do need to join, we do need to worship, we do need to be together with the Lord and with the Lord's people. Uh, but as we're walking with him throughout the week, the more closely we walk and walk through things, the better these moments become. So it has been awesome to be going through it uh, with you guys and to be reading. So hopefully it also give, provides context to stuff that we're not preaching through. Uh, last week I mapped out the New Testament. And I'm really looking forward to what we're going to do in the New Testament together. So we get to run through the life of Jesus. And then we kind of unfold both the, kind of the, the trips of Paul. We did Acts in the fall of this year. So we'll do a little bit of Acts. But as we're going through Acts, we're going to be seeing select epistles and, and kind of the content of those epistles as it moves on to hit both just important ideas and important doctrines for the church. As we go, we do scripture memory. And so Nehemiah 9.6 is this week's scripture memory, which is a little longer, uh, maybe harder for us to memorize. We're doing the CSB because that's the version I made songs in. And so I'm making all of you change your translations if you're translating or, or uh, if you're memorizing with us. Nehemiah 9.6, which I was reviewing before I got up here because I needed to get it right, um, says this, you Lord are the only God. You created the heavens, the highest heavens and all their stars, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to all of them, and all the stars of heaven worship you. There's Nehemiah 9.6, which is part of Nehemiah's uh, prayer, the people's prayer and praise in chapter 9. We will not be in chapter 9 today. We're actually going to be one before. We're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 8. So if you have your Bible with you or you need the screen behind me, you can have either one. Nehemiah chapter 8. Let me read through it. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it, facing the square before the water gate, from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mattitiah. I'm going to just make up these names and you're going to go with it. Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Maasiah at the right hand. And Padiah, Mishael, Malkijah, Hashem, Hasbadana, Zechariah, and Meshalam on his left hand. 
And Ezra opened the book in the sight of the people, for he was above all of the people in his platform, right? Not in his stature. He was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, amen, amen, lifting their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with faces to the ground. And Jeshua, Benai, Serabiah, Jaman, Akub, Shabbatai, Hodai, Masahai, Keliatai, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Peliah, and Levites. The Levites helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly. And they gave meaning so the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was governor, and Ezra, the priest and scribe, and Levites, who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go on your way, eat the fat, drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready, for this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went on their way to eat and drink and send portions and make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. On the second day, that was all day one. On the second day, the heads of the father's houses of all the people with the priests and the Levites came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. They wanted more. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month. The Feast of Booths the feast, uh, is what that would be called. And that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns in Jerusalem, saying, go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof and in their courts and in the courts of his house, in the square of the water gate, in the square of the gate of Ephraim, and all the assembly of those, and those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in booths. For from the days of Jeshua, the son of Nun, Joshua, to the day of the people of Israel had not, to that day, the people of Israel had not done so. It's a long time to not do something God had commanded. And there was a very, and there was very great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days. On the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we would pray that as we engage your word, as we read it and pray over it and hear from you, that your spirit would open us up to what you would have and that we would be transformed um, in your presence. We cannot do it on our own. So Lord, uh, make us wise by your spirit and your power, not by the world's power and might. And guide us through Nehemiah 8, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, some of you people here really like order and organization. And I know, you know, you like things to be in their place and look good, and some people don't really care at all. Both of you are welcome here. Jesus died for both kinds. Um, but I do like when a passage just kind of flows. It just makes sense. You see it go, oh, look at that. Look at what, kind of look at what happens. That's not always the case 
when you're reading the Bible. I know we like to think it's always the case, like, oh yeah, 100 times out of 100, it makes perfect sense. Clearly it doesn't. Even Peter, Apostle Peter in the New Testament is like, Paul can really be hard to understand sometimes. He just uses such big words and has these really crazy sentences. So, so even apostles are disagreeing over how clear the apostles are teaching, which is comforting for us. So sometimes we read a passage and it just doesn't, you know, we're like, I don't even understand how these things work, how it makes sense. Other times we read it, we go, huh, look at that. And for this passage and for how I'm looking at it, it's a, look at that. Look at, look at how that just kind of flows and makes sense. And we'll see it as we get, go, go through this passage is that uh, Christian life certainly is not always orderly. <clears throat> it's anything but. But at times when you read something, you go, look at the flow that we have in that passage. Look at the way that those pieces fit together. So this is, Nehemiah is gonna show us a helpful flow of transformation. It's not the 100% of the time this is how it happens, uh, but it's a helpful flow for how the people are transformed, and it shows us a general way in which that kind of transformation happens and will give for us maybe a challenge on what do we ourselves need to consider and questions for us to respond to. Now, just a note, uh, there's a pastor, a pastor named Gene Getz, and he kind of pointed these, this flow out. It's, I'm going to use words at the end that you've all heard before, um, and hopefully even throughout the whole sermon, you've heard every word I've ever said uh, at some previous time. But I do enjoy the way he kind of just talked about, look at the way that this made sense. And so, hat tip to Gene for pointing those things out. So this passage really breaks down in three paragraphs. If you're looking at the pages on, in your Bible, and you can use a phone, or you can use pages, or you can use a screen, but if you do have the pages, you can actually see the paragraph divisions. You don't have to scroll through them. And so sometimes for something like this, it becomes helpful. So we have eight through, uh, eight, one through eight, that's paragraph one. And then verses nine through 12, paragraph two, verses 13 through 18, paragraph three. Those are our three movements. Look at that, three, move, three paragraphs, three movements, three points, boom. Like this is like the sermon they teach you to preach in preaching class, um, you know? So we're, gonna, we're just gonna crush it, right? Kidding, like I can somehow do that. So we'll look at what, how God's word changes us. Uh, Rock preached a couple of weeks ago from Ezra chapter seven, and you saw Ezra setting his heart to study, to obey, and to teach. Right, that was an easy little flow, the same kind of thing. Ezra wanted to study the word and then obey the word and then teach the word. We're gonna see a similar kind of three-piece movement, but it happens a little differently in Nehemiah chapter eight. This is not the same telling. It's a, uh, it's a, it's a moment, though, where the people gather together, all who could understand, and present the law. Now, I don't know the ages. It was men, women, and those who could understand, so I would assume children of certain ages. Uh, and so at Genesis, you'll notice we have like children's programming for birth through second grade. Um, like God didn't say at third grade, because third grade didn't exist in Nehemiah 8, at third grade people just start to get it. Uh, but we kind of go, at third grade you could probably be able to engage in a corporate environment. You may not like it, uh, but you could, you could probably engage in it uh, as your parents kind of slap you on the leg. You're like, pay attention, pay attention, pay attention or your spouse does the same thing, right? Like it's not really, not really age dependent there. <clears throat> but everyone's gathering and they're hearing Ezra read the law and there's people flanking Ezra who are hearing people teach and bring understanding to the law. That's really the flow in that first paragraph and so this is what we're gonna see here is that God's word changes our, uh, our perspective, God's word changes our 
view the world or understanding. And in order to do that, I just want you to look at, uh, he's reading, they're praising, right? I'm going to conflate these ideas a little bit. But if you look in that first paragraph, you skip over a bajillion names just for a second. Sorry, guys, when you get to heaven, I'm going to be like, I'm sorry, you just have weird names. It's hard to make that a sermon. But if you look at verses 7 and 8, you see all of these folks who helped the people understand the law in verse 7. They read from the book of the law clearly, and they gave the meaning so that the people understood the reading. And so right there, you see that, that God's word changes our perspective, but it requires what? Understanding. Understanding. And so there's nothing, I say magical, like pixie dust about reading the Bible. Like it doesn't, it's not like you just sprinkle over people and all of a sudden things are fine, right? The, the words themselves aren't magic. It's the God of the word, right? The word himself, Jesus, which will be sermon in two weeks, John chapter one. It's the God of the word. It's not the, page, the word on the pages. That's what we're trying to do. And even as we read, we're going, how does this help us understand our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? But as you hear the scriptures, and in, there, in them, in the Old Testament, the words of the law, you need understanding. Now we would know, in the New Testament, understanding comes by the Spirit of God, illuminating our hearts and our minds to the things that are there. So you can read, have you ever had an experience like this where you read, you go, man, I have read that book of the Bible 10 bajillion times, because we have to give ourselves a lot of credit for how much Bible we read. Right? I've read that thing a bajillion times and I don't think I've ever read that verse. Have you ever had a moment like that? Where you go, is that even, I, I don't think I've ever seen that. I think that was like a 2019 addition to what I've read. Never before have I, have I seen that. Or you've heard somebody preach and you're like, yeah, I shake this thing and wring it out and, and, and what you said never fell out. Never seen that, ever in my life. Well, that's what's going on in that first paragraph is that as they are hearing it, the Lord is bringing understanding to what they're hearing. This is why God gifts his church with different gifts. He gives apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, people who can bring instruction. I really like Peter's style. Peter the fisherman dumbs it it down for all of us, and he says, right, there's 1 Peter chapter 4, some of you have speaking gifts and some of you have serving gifts. Like, great, I, can, I, I like Peter's style. He summarizes for me. So like some, some encourage the body by how they speak. Some encourage the body by how they serve. Like, that's a division I can work with. Otherwise, I'm just trying to go like, well, what kind of prophecy and what kind of this, right? I spent all my time just trying to figure out what it means. Like, speaking, serving, got it. And so some, God has gifted his church by his spirit to bring clarity to the word. That doesn't mean that you can't read the scriptures and the Spirit himself will not bring clarity. It just means that as we operate together as a faith family, God has gifted some people to help bring understanding, to help bring encouragement, to bring teaching. And there is that moment where you hear and you go, I've never heard that before. That's really what's happening in these first eight verses of Nehemiah. They're reading it, but it's not just the reading. It's the bringing understanding. And as understanding is being brought, what's happening? Their thoughts are changing. 
So we, we actually just sang Come Thou Fount. And it's funny because I wrote a line to Come, Come Thou Fount in my notes. I don't even know if you read my notes, Matt, but you, if you did, good job. Because we have this line in Come Thou Fount, which I love, which is tune my heart. Tune my heart to sing thy praise. And that's a kind of a funny line because we don't use a lot of the words in Come Thou Fount as we talk. Like, we don't say tune my heart that often. I don't know anybody who would ever say that. Uh, John Mayer says half of my heart, but that's not the same thing. So tune my heart to sing thy praise. And so what does that mean? Like, like align it. Remember Nehemiah chapter one, the heart aligned with God's purposes? So we say tune my heart. We're saying I want, I want what I'm doing and how I'm feeling in my heart to align with you. And if you've ever hit two keys on a piano that are side by side, they create a word called dissonance, right? And all, you can feel the vibration, even though it's like, right? Like just a half step apart, you feel that vibration. But when they come together or they're brought into harmony, it changes the way your ear hears it, right? And so good musicians are able to take all the keys of a piano and actually put together something that makes sense. Well, we want, by the Lord's Spirit, to have our hearts tuned to him. But that requires understanding of his character, understanding of his nature, and thus for us, understanding of how he has revealed himself in the scriptures. Because if you try to find another source of authority, my guess is, and then you might root that source of authority in your friends or in your family or in just kind of the dominant themes of culture. Whenever you try to root your source of authority in things that are changing, what, what happens? Your convictions and opinions change along with it. I mean, it makes sense, right? If you, if you kind of build something on a foundation that shifts, it would make sense that your feelings and thoughts would shift as well. That isn't to say that even as you read the scriptures, the Lord's not changing you as you read it and adjusting and tweaking and moving, but we have to engage and understand what we read and what we see, what we hear, so that we can tune our hearts with God, his character, and his nature. And so God brings the people understanding. We need to go to the source of revelation so that we can have our minds properly aligned. And when you can do that, and this is the fun thing I get to do with my kids all the time, is like you get to then talk about truth. You know, you can, you can watch a movie. No, we don't watch movies here because we're really prudish, but like, you know, you could, you could if you did, if you saw Avengers, uh, you could watch it and you could know why it has an emotional impact on you. Because you know about human nature and you know about story and you know about triumph. You, know about, like, you, you start to know things. And so something that's going to always make me cry in a movie is a theme of rescue. Whenever people are rescued, I'm always just like, <laughs> I'm watching Dunkirk, right? Like, I don't cry at movies until somebody starts getting rescued. And then I'm like, that's what God did. Like, that, there I was. I couldn't get anywhere. I was going to die. And then, like, all the boats show up, and Jesus is in all of them, right? Like, there he is. And you're just restored. Like, so when I see that, why? Because I, I want to be familiar with the theme of God's grace, his redemption, his rescuing of us, and bringing us from death to life. But the more aligned you are with what you read and what you see and what's going on in the scriptures and who the God of the scriptures is, the more you start to see him. 
And so that's what's going on, that first movement, their understanding of the world and their understanding of God is being changed. The same thing happens to us, and we would pray it happens day after day after day, is that we continue to understand who our Lord is. That we continue to understand how he has saved. That we continue to understand even the depths of our own sin and our need for him. So their understanding, their perspective is changing by God's word. God's word. And then something else happens. We talked a little bit about this last week. But God's word changes our affections, the way we actually feel about things. This is why I get weepy at certain movies and certain scenes. Like, the way God's word changes our understanding, it shouldn't stop here, right? Because the Lord is transforming all of us. He's not just transforming our minds, but he's transforming also what's going on in the seat of our affections, our heart. So if you look at verses 9 and 10, Nehemiah was the governor, Ezra the priest and the scribe. The Levites taught the people and they said, hey, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. Then there's a commentary. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. He said, go on your way, eat the fat, drink sweet wine, send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord and do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And so you see in those two verses, as we get into that next paragraph, they're going, the people are starting to weep and mourn based upon what they have heard and understood. Now it's interesting, and we'll get to that in a second, but it's interesting that like, all the leaders are like, don't be sad. Because you know, we really like, you know, like, sadness is cool. Like if we see somebody crying, we're like, God must be doing something. It's always what we think, God must be doing something. And so it's interesting that they're crying and everyone's like, stop crying. I'm not crying, you're crying. Like, I don't know what they're doing. <clears throat> but they say, stop crying. Stop crying. There's no crying in baseball, whatever, whatever line. I don't watch movies, I just quote them. And so the people's affections are being changed by what they're hearing and what they're understanding. Now I would have to guess, and we'll see it from the next paragraph, but I have to guess what they're seeing is just how disobedient they have been. Because as you're reading and understanding the scriptures and you're seeing then God's heart and you're understanding what God would have and what we would believe here is that what God would have for us is better than what we would have for us. When you're seeing that and then you just start to see the divide between you and God get greater and greater and greater and greater and greater. I mean, I could keep going, but the fish is gonna get so big my arms will rip off. So, I, you know, it's like there's a, the gap gets huge. And the people are being affected because their understanding of the law is showing them the depths to which they have fallen from their obedience to the law, and they are broken over it. And yet they're told, rejoice, be glad. And that's the part that's kind of funny, because if you've ever seen your friends crying, you don't usually say, stop crying, be happy. Like, I can't turn it off, you know? Like, like you know, you don't know what's going on. And so sometimes I talk to my kids, and I'm like, you, you don't need to cry about that. And they're like, I don't know how to stop. <clears throat> and so I find it odd that they're being broken over what I would say is their, their sinfulness and the gap between them and what God has revealed and yet they're being told to rejoice. But if you understand how hearing the word 
and responding to it changes people, then I think it gives some reasoning as to why. Because that understanding word that we saw from the first paragraph is so important. As God is revealing himself to people, it has different effects and in different ways, but ultimately you rejoice because God is revealing himself to people and they're seeing it and their hearts are tender and so, so they're seeing more of the Lord by hearing and understanding the law and it's changing them and they're like, this is a good thing. Celebrate that you can hear it and that you can understand. And so when somebody comes to faith in Jesus, let's just use that as an example. Somebody's like, I'm just so far from God. And we go, no, Jesus came for you. He died for you. He gave himself for you that you might have life. And they're like, I just can't believe God. He love me so much. Or whatever's going on in that story. You say to them, be glad. Be glad because you were dead and now you're alive. So you rejoice and so, so that that emotion and of rejoicing over just mourning and weeping because God has made himself seen and known in the midst of his people. That's what they're saying. Go, verse 10, eat the fat, drink sweet wine. This means feast. Send portions to anyone who has nothing ready for this day is holy to the Lord. Don't be grieved. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Now we were talking about this in the elders meeting even this last week. And how little words like, of the Lord kind of change how we understand the passage. So we might have sung a song about that, right? I think it's I'm trading my sorrows and laying them down for the joy of the Lord. Like if you were kind of late 90s, early 2000s Christian, that song was baller. So, you know, we're singing yes, Lord. You just sing yes, Lord a bunch, yeah. Sorry for those of you who don't know the song, you're missing out. Um, But you sing this line, the joy of the Lord is your strength. I was trying to go, huh, what does that mean? It could actually mean one of two things if you look at it. The joy of the Lord is your strength. It could mean I have joy in God and thus I am strengthened. That's thing one. That's probably how we would just naturally read it. The joy of the Lord. I have joy in the Lord, so my joy of the Lord. Or, change it, the joy of the Lord meaning God's joy. See how it could be either of those things just as you read joy of the Lord? So my joy in God or God's joy probably in himself that God is joyful. As I hold those two options out, ultimately God is sustaining the whole thing, right? We're always gonna kind of play the sovereignty card whenever we don't understand a verse, which is smart. Ultimately, it's gonna be the Lord who is sustaining it regardless. But we've seen over the thousand years of Israel's history that we have surveyed this year, that any person or any group's ability to sustain a walk with the Lord seems to be pretty abysmal. They can't really keep any heat going for long. It's always the work of God for them. It's always God who is saving them. It's always God who's bringing them back from exile, which he's done here. It's always God sustaining them. It's always God protecting them. And so when I understand and we kind of follow that thread through everything that we have read this year so far, it makes sense to go, no, your, your strength is God. Your strength is God. God is sufficient. Rejoice because God's joy, and we don't often think of God as just joyful. I mean, we often have views of God as like God's angry, God's mad, God's kind of catatonic. He just stands there. Like like, like we have all these different views of God. I would guess, and maybe I'm wrong, most of you don't have a general view of God that he is just overwhelmingly joyous. 
that he's just a joyful God who is completely and totally satisfied in himself. That he needs nothing other than himself. That he longs for, in an eternal sense, nothing other than himself. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Stand on God. Don't stand on your ability to love God, follow God, serve him enough, be strong enough, because you know, we know, Genesis, we can't do it. I said a few weeks ago, I have a daily reminder that I put on my phone a little while ago to remind yourself that God loves you. And every morning I read it, I forgot it from the day before. I'm like, oh my gosh, yes, like I'm discovering something. Every morning I'm discovering the same thing. God loves me. Because it doesn't even take 24 hours for me to forget true things. And so that's why when I look at that passage, I go, don't, don't stand on your own strength or even your own ability. Stand on God's strength, stand on God's joy, stand on God's hope. Let that be what strengthens you because you will not be able to use your own strength to get anything done that is eternally significant. Perspectives change in that first paragraph, 8, 1 through 8, which moves to affections in verses 9 through 12. They're feeling what they're reading and understanding. And they move from sorrow to rejoicing because they are understanding God's character. And then we get to day two in verses 13 through 18. I just want to read through these verses real quick. On the second day, heads of the father's houses of all the people, so the leaders got together, with the priests and Levites, they came together in order to study the words of the law. They wanted to know and hear more. Verse 14, they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month. What month are they in? Seventh month. Okay, so they're going, wait a minute, God gave us a feast. It's one of the big feasts they're supposed to have. God gave us a feast to remember him in the seventh month. We're in the seventh month, right? And it's like, it's like they're finding gold, right? Like, like, oh my gosh, look, seventh month. He said, God said seventh month. We could do this thing. They should proclaim it, publish it in all Jerusalem. Go out of the hills, bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths, as it is written. We're going to have a camp out. We're going to make our own booths. We're not going to live in our houses. We're going to live on our roofs. So the people went out, and they brought them, and they made booths for themselves, each on his roof and in their courts, in the courts of the house of God, in the square of the water gate, the square of the gate of uh, Ephraim, or Ephraim, and all the assembly who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in booths. For from the days of Jeshua son of Nun or Joshua son of Nun to that day, the people of Israel had not done so. And there was very great, there's that word again, rejoicing. Day by day, from the first day to the last, a week-long festival, he read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days. On the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. What do you see there? God's words changes our actions. It's a nice little flow. So they get together, they want to keep reading, and they discover, look, God told us to do this. It has been quite some time since we've done this. But God said, do it in the seventh month. We have some time to prepare and get ready to do this in the seventh month. Let's do it. And so they do it, and they rejoice. 
And the reason I love that, I think it just falls so nicely together, a little too easy, too easy of a sermon to preach, is because they understand God's character, they're being affected by God's character, they then read that there's something they're not obeying, they long to obey it, and then they just do it. Do what the word says. Now, a question for us is, is this, a good question for me. What about when I know what God's word says and I don't do it? What about when I know what it says and I don't do it? And I'll run into these in counseling situations, I'll run into those in marriage situations where like, I know that I shouldn't be doing this. I know that I shouldn't be living this way. I know that whatever but still going to do it. Well, you don't have to you know, ask me my opinion on that like on the side. I'll tell you, generally not a good idea. And I use generally in the most ironic sense I possibly can. Never a good idea to know clearly what is said in the scriptures and not do it. Now this illustration in verses 13 through 18 is rather clear. There's a feast you celebrate on this month and this day and in this way. And they go, we can do that. There are times where we're trying to figure out, like, how do I obediently do this thing that I see in the scriptures? I, I get that, but we don't want to be like the lawyer who's like, well, who's really my neighbor, right? Or we're trying to find ways to not obey by kind of redefining what obedience looks like. But there are things even now and even today that we probably, if we were just honest with ourselves, go, I know that this is disobedient. I know it. But I'm still doing it. Now, I told you the passage flowed in a nice way. I'll just give you the three words because you've already seen them, you've already heard them. Head, heart, head, heart, hands. You've heard this before. Like the triple H way of, you know, living for the Lord or whatever. I'm not trying to make it like that. But you see three different kinds of transformation in the hearing of God's word in Nehemiah chapter 8. Understanding. How they understand and perceive the world. What's going on in their head. But it quickly moves, doesn't it? I mean, almost to the point where it's not like, oh, understand, and then wait a few days, and then it moves. Like, it's, it's going, understanding affections, changing their heart. But then that change leads to behavior change. And so often... I think we do this in our discipling of one another is that we misapply or we don't kind of think of all the ways God wor God's word transforms people to really understand what somebody's saying. Well, they're saying, I don't really want to do that. Okay, that's just one symptom of maybe a larger problem. So that problem might be, are you, are you engaging? Are you understanding? Are you reading? Are you discussing? Are you praying over God's word? Is your heart longing to please God? So, so you take any one of these in isolation and you might treat the wrong thing as you're working through people with discipleship because God has made you as a whole person. He's like, I don't want to do it. I'm like, okay, well, what other thing might be going on that leads you to your just kind of lack of obedience? Because so often you've checked out at some other point and all you're really doing at that point in time is dealing with the symptoms of somebody who's totally taken their heart out of a pursuit of God but they no longer care. Now think about how this whole passage begins. 
It doesn't begin with just a cool speech. It doesn't begin with some neat ideas. It doesn't begin with a PowerPoint presentation. It begins with Ezra reading the law and people bringing understanding to these who are in the assembly. Their understanding is being changed and their hearts are being changed. So their hearts are being changed, their actions are being changed. And they see what's in the scriptures and they wanna do the things that are in the scriptures. Why? Because God has changed their mind, God has changed their heart, and so it would make sense that what follows would be actions. Now the reason I say it's not always that clean cut is sometimes you are just brought here with your parents time and time and time again and they're kind of forming habits within you and you don't really want to be here but you know I should probably go it's good to go and so you go it's good to be obedient to mom and dad and so you come time and time again so the habit is being formed sometimes before the heart has been reached and that's totally fine because we know that it's not like well one two three it's not always like that but from understanding comes heart change from heart change comes Lifestyle change, that's generally the flow that you see. And if you short circuit it, you try to change any one in the wrong order, not in the wrong order, but you try to change any one in isolation, you often do harm. If you just go to people, you're like, hey, do better. But you don't really understand if they even know the gospel. Right? Like, like you don't even know if they know who Jesus is. So, and it, it, ha- it hasn't been clear to them. And so if you just go to somebody like that, you're like, do better. You might, I've said this before, you might actually help them live better in an earthly sense, but you won't help them live better in an, in an eternal sense. So yeah, I would tell you, say to anybody, if you're in this room and you're not a Christian today, you would be better off living as the scriptures ask for you to live. But you will still die and go to hell if you do not have faith in the Lord of the scriptures, Jesus Christ. So if you just go, hey, you're behaving wrong, behave better, and you just make that sermon, Nehemiah 8, 13 through 18, then you miss the transformation that happens in the paragraph before it and the paragraph before that. And so for you, brothers and sisters who are here in this room, I want to give you just a way, a grid to think about this. All right, because the head is kind of, what, what do I believe, what do I know? Heart is, how do I feel? hands is what do I do? How do I live this out? And in all three of these areas, there are ways, uh, you can't really self-diagnose because we're pretty fallen and we like to go, I'm doing all right. But I do want to ask you this question, which is like, in which of these areas have you disengaged? We hear, and you'll hear me, I say it week after week, I want you to read, I want you to apply, I want you to study, I want you to examine, I want you to be in a community group where you can talk to people about the scriptures and work out what exists within them. I want the spirit to bring understanding to us, even in this gathering or when you're in a community group or when you're studying by yourself. I want all of those things to happen and I want the truth of God to be worked out in community as it is here. They're not going, hey, everybody, get a copy of the law, go read it by yourself and get together and discuss it. Like they're all hearing it and working through it. So the communal aspect of this is important. I want God to be revealing himself to us in every way based on his truth and what he has said. But perhaps you just go, I just don't even want to read anymore. Okay. Right? Like, like honest confession. I get it. And all of you in this room are there now or have been there? You're like, I just don't want to read. Like, I'm tired of reading the Bible. And so, like, little things, I'm like, okay, well, this is what I do with my kids. Because I, I generally try to, 
like write little assignments for my kids, which is really ridiculous. They're going to have uh, poor preacher's kids. They're going to just be scarred for life. I'm like, you know, other kids don't have to do this. I'm like, I know, but you're my sons. Um, but even then, on weeks where I get behind, these past few weeks I haven't been able to do as much, I'll just go, just read a psalm. All right, read a psalm and just keep going back to the source. When I use my gym illustration, it's one of my favorite ones, but like, you know, I say, show up to the gym better than not showing up at all. You might show up, get on the treadmill and go for a minute, go, I'm tired. I'm out. Okay, great. All right, you gave it a minute. What I want to encourage you to do is just keep going back to the source of revelation. Keep going back to the Lord. And when you honestly have doubts about the scriptures or doubts about God's goodness or doubts about God's character, there's no better place to go with them than to the Lord. You don't need to go to, I mean, you can go to me with them. That's fine. We can talk about it. But I'm still going to go, man, you should probably bring that to God. Like, tell him, I'm having a hard time trusting you. I don't think you're good. I don't know why you've let this happen. That's fine. Keep going back. Because you know, as you read the Psalms, what you'll find is those same emotions and those same thoughts existed in the writers of the Psalms. I don't think you're good. I don't know why these people are having a better day than I am. I should be having a good day. I don't know why people who don't know you are prospering when I'm sitting here with no money in the bank account. Those kinds of Psalms are there. How come evil people seem to be doing better than us? All are there. And so continue to go back. Heart is hard. Heart is hard. Anybody in this room other than me struggle with compassion sometimes? Anybody, yeah? Just, just me? Okay, cool, yeah. You're like, like, I told you that about yourself. I get it. But you see the transformation of the heart comes through our understanding of God. It doesn't stop. The last thing that we need here are bobblehead Christians. We just have these gigantic brains like, oh yeah, I could parse any Greek word in the world. Oh, I'm the best, right? They're just kind of walking around doing this the whole time. Like, oh, I know the Bible back and forth. I'm like, great, sure. You know what? So do lost people. Your Bible knowledge does not impress me. Doesn't. There are people who know less Bible that are obeying it better than all of us. So, like, you're not going to hit this, this part of Scripture knowledge where you're like, okay, now I'm ready. Because you're always going to put it beyond kind of where you are in life. I just need to know 10% more. I need to know, be X percent more comfortable before I'm good. And so what do we start to do? We're bobbleheads. We just kind of swell up our brains with Bible knowledge and we can talk about it and we can argue it. What's your theological position here, right? And we kind of have our cans like, right, I'll show you. Calvinism's better. This is better. This is better. This is better, right? And all we're doing is like, I'm blowing people up. And I'm like, you're kind of heartless. Like all, all you do is just go after people with arguments. It's not what the Lord does. Jesus is always going after heart, isn't he? When you read the Gospels and you listen to his stories, the parables that he's talking about, he's like, he's always kind of jacking with what's going on in here. And he just has this way of being like, well, hold on, you know, good teacher over here, tell me about this. And he's like, like, get away. God's meddling. Heart. Some of us get a little too robotic in our approach to faith. I'm, I, I can confess that. I'm educated beyond my obedience. Absolutely. I can prove it. 
sometimes our hearts just disengage, they check out. And so a good question to ask, maybe to friends and family, to those in your community group, is to go, do I come across as a jerk? As someone who's unconcerned about people? I'm gonna brag on you for a second, Johnny. So just get ready, his eyes got big. I think Johnny Rowe, one of our elders here, has one of the biggest hearts at this church. Like, I'm like, if, if something's going wrong in your life, just go right, just right here. Bonnie, you just go right to this corner of the room. You go to me, I'll be like, so, like something's wrong. But some people just have, like the Lord has just changed them. I have to tell these people why, because our hearts are huge. If we run to people with huge hearts when we are in moments of crisis, shouldn't that say something about maybe where our hearts should be? Shouldn't we want to be that for other people? There are a few people in my life who I could tell anything to and I would trust with anything because their hearts are huge, because they've been transformed by the grace of God and it didn't stop here. It didn't stop here. But so often, we like to stop here because we can seem really smart. There's a professor in seminary, Lanier Burns, he would say this, he goes, the best translation of the Bible is the one you live. That's, that's the one. The one that shows me that the things that are in it are the things that matter to you. And even all of our Bible verse recitation that we've done and we've gone through 30 weeks and maybe you have like five of the 30 downward perfect, all of that is in hopes that at some point in time it breaks through whatever's going on in our hard-heartedness and transforms us at the right place and in the right time. That it gives us language to communicate about God with. So heart transformation. And I think it's good to have checkups. I'm never gonna ask you to say, hey, you should, you know, you should always just totally be a softie. God gives gifts people differently. He gives them different temperaments. But I think it would be fair to say all of us need to have our hearts more transformed by the truths of the gospel. Day after day, week after week. We should, like good wine, age, which you guys are feeling, you know, my cousin isn't really a drinker. I don't, I I even know that though. Wine ages better with years or so I've heard if you kind of hold it the right position or the right temperature or however else is that supposed to work. And I was at a funeral one time of a sweet saint who, uh, when the pastor got up, he said, most people don't get sweeter with age. And they get more angry, more bitter, more cynical. But not so for this lady. Her name was Connie. Not so for Connie. Connie got better with age. Why? Because she knew the Lord and stayed after pursuing the Lord. Day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, decade after decade, trial after trial. And the Lord softens us and changes our hearts. And then that other transformation, what we do with what we hear and what we know and how we feel. Are we educated beyond our obedience? Are we actually listening to the things of God or are we just living with the bobblehead? Head, heart, hands, how do we do it? When we read things in the scriptures, do we actually ask ourselves the question, how can I do this? 
We love, we love, I do, I do the same thing. We love to kind of stop at this moment of philosophy. What would you do if, you know? What do you think about obeying it like this? I'm like, well, I think we should do it, right? Like, I'd, it would be a good thing to do if we obeyed it like that. But sometimes, because we love it, like, like, and this is what I think our flesh does, our flesh is gonna pounce on something, and I'm in a group of guys who meet on Thursday mornings, and we try to talk every week about the stuff we're reading. And it's always, I do the same thing, it's always interesting to watch how we're kind of getting to a moment of heart, and we're kinda, we just, we'll, we'll, sometimes we'll just kind of coast right along just kind of discussing an idea. And we all do this, right? Like, 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 it's like, we're getting there, we're getting there, we're getting there, and then the plane just stalls. Because it's so much easier for us just to talk about concepts than it is for us to go, how would this actually change me? How should this change me today? How should this truth make me different today because of what Jesus has done for me? But we're always kind of pushing our obedience into the future. Man, I can't wait till I do that better, which is true, right? Like, we're never gonna do it perfectly. Jesus is our perfection. But we just kind of kick it off. So I think I said this last week. If I didn't, I'm saying it now. Uh, the missionary I love and respect and in the biblical language, whose sandals I'm unworthy to untie, but he's not Jesus. Um, he had this line that I read recently in one of his emails. He goes, it's not the things Jesus says because Jesus isn't unclear. It's the implications of what he says that we, that we run from. It's not like you read something Jesus says and you go, huh? I mean, sometimes you go, I don't really get it. But even the stuff we don't get, like we get the, also the telling of the disciples, was like, and then he pulled us aside and he told us exactly what it meant. And you read that and you're like, cool, so tell me, do you think that Mark came first or Matthew came first. Like, which gospel was first written, right? That's, like, that's where we'll go. Because we don't want to. This is what our flesh does. Like oil and water, we don't want to contend with the truths that exist within Scripture. The hard work of sanctification, our walking with the Lord, and the hard work of our disciple-making is dealing with the truths of Scripture as revealed by the Spirit and how it should change us. How it should change us as individuals, how it should change us as a church, how it should change us as evangelists, because we just do not, the flesh wants to rail against a work of the Spirit in us. Galatians chapter five says as much. The flesh wants the opposite of what the Spirit wants. And so you will always find an excuse not to obey. You could walk into a room with zero excuses and you leave with 10 million excuses because you don't want to obey. That's the human heart condition that Jesus has transformed. We long for the day, as spoken of by the prophets, as we see as we get into the book of Revelation at the end of the year, we long for the day where that battle's gone. And everything we do is empowered by the Spirit. And there's never another moment of indecision in our lives. And until that day, we continue to walk moment by moment, day by day, passage by passage, misstep by misstep with the Lord who is transforming us day by day by day by day to be more like him. I want to pray that for us now.
Heavenly Father, we cannot do it. With all the strength that we would want to muster up and all the power we would want to have and all the things that we would love to be able to do for you, we just simply cannot do it. Your son has done it. And your spirit does empower us. We would ask God that we would live in the identity as a transformed people and as a transformed church. To understand your word clearly. To have our affections and our desires and our longings changed. And for our obedience, Lord, to grow. Only by your grace and only for your glory. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.